For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. Uh, My name is Phil. If we haven't met, I'm one of the ministers here. We've got a great passage to look at, so let's pray and get to work. Father God, I do pray that you would uh, give us sharp minds to understand uh, old and perhaps confusing words. Father, please would you help us to see how they uh, teach us truth about you and how they open for us our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this, that we would uh, stand firmly on your truths and live boldly because of them. Amen. I give you my word. We hear it all the time. I give you my word. This sermon really will not go on too long. I give you my word. (laughs) It doesn't fill you with confidence. I mean, uh, do this work and I'll pay you. I'll give you my word. I'll love you forever. I I give you my word. Uh, Sometimes we want a little bit more than, (laughs) than a word, don't we? Because uh, the truth is that we've all been told, I give you my word, by people who've then let us down, who've hurt us and betrayed us. And so before I'm going to do any work for you, I want a contract of employment, because I'm sorry, your word's not enough, oh boss of mine. I want a contract of employment. And it's not enough for you to tell me, I will love you forever. If you really feel like that, then marry me. We sometimes recognise just my word isn't enough. What about God? What makes us uh, sure we can trust him? The Bible tells us, build your life on God. Uh, Put your future in his hands. Trust him with your money, your relationships, with your everything. Trust him with your death. Well, okay, uh, what guarantee have I got that I can trust this God? I need a little bit more than I give you my word if I'm going to trust him with my life and my death. Well, the Bible tells us in this passage that God gives us more than his word. His word should be enough, but God actually gives us more. He gives us a covenant. It's a very, very important word. He gives us his covenant, which means a legal binding basis for a relationship. A binding legal basis for a relationship. And God says, uh, trust me in the darkness, trust me with everything, because because I will prove my commitment to you. And in one sense, uh, the Bible is basically the story of covenant. Uh, The Old Testament is full of um, binding ceremonies of promise that God makes. Uh, There are lots of them, but actually they really uh, really boil down to one thing. They're expansions and uh, developments of one key promise. God says, I will be your God. And you will be my people. And all of the, the different covenants, the, the ceremonial legal promises of the Old Testament, they really fall into this category. But actually, of course, um, it's not quite that simple. Uh, the second reading, which you, um, you just heard, makes it clear that 
since Jesus came, things are a bit different. All those Old Testament things, well, we don't relate to God on the basis of the Old Testament. We read in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Familiar words to us. We Every time we share communion, we, we say these words. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's tempting then uh, when you realise that there's a new covenant, that uh, we don't relate to God on the basis of this Old Testament stuff. Exodus 24 doesn't dictate how you and I relate to God. We think, well, hang on a second, it's full of altars and blood being flung around and sapphire pavements and all manner of weirdness. Um, Doesn't apply to me. Can we just get back to Romans? Maybe, you know, it's a whole lot easier. But, but the new covenant is not totally separate. It is a fulfillment of the old covenant. And in fact, we'll only really understand what's going on in the new covenant if we understand the, the roots of it. If we've had a look at the working models in the old covenant. And that's uh, why we need to, to actually work through these passages. We will understand what Jesus has done a whole lot more clearly if we get our heads around Chapters like Exodus 24 and the Old Covenant at Sinai. Okay, one thing to notice um, just before we dive into the text is that throughout you'll see it is God who takes the initiative. It is God who takes the initiative. Uh, you know how it is with, uh, with some couples. Um, you ask, you know, how did you guys get together? And the way he tells it, well, I was all very alpha male and hunter-gatherer about the thing. I just saw her, I liked her, and I said, let's go out. And she was so amazed at my boldness that she just melted and said yes. You ask her, and she's like, I was giving him hints for months. And finally, he sort of said, maybe the coffee, um, you know, there's there's some debate as to who really, you know, drove the thing. There's no debate in the Bible. God takes all the initiative. God takes all the initiative. Uh, You see in chapter 24, he calls the elders up to him, verse 1. He tells Moses what the people are to do again and again. He commands the sacrifices. He summons Moses up to receive the written book of the covenant at the end. It's just a continuation, really, of what we see throughout the Bible. Right at the start, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve have sinned and run away from God, it is God who goes after them. Adam, where are you? It is God who calls Abraham when he's in Ur and calls him out to follow him. It is God who goes to Egypt and rescues the children of Israel and leads them to his mountain, to Mount Sinai, for this covenant, this this wedding ceremony between God and his people. We're not reading about um, this wonderful couple, God and the Israelites, coming together. We're reading about God going out, winning, and then securing the future of him and this people together. And we're going to learn um, three things really as we, as we dive into the text. We'll focus actually just on verses 1 to 10. Um, but we'll learn three things about our relationship with God from the ceremony. Because the ceremony, the nature of the ceremony tells you about the relationship. You know, there's a huge difference between uh, citizenship ceremony, those of you who've um, become British citizens, from a marriage ceremony. There's just a picture of the Queen there. She's not actually planning on having a personal relationship with you when you become a citizen. Wedding ceremony... Bride and groom have to both be there. It's going to be a, a personal engagement. There's, there's all sorts in the ceremony that tells you about what the relationship will be like. And here we'll learn three things. We see uh, you've got the points there. God desires relationship 
we see that God demands obedience and God provides sacrifice. And they tell us a huge amount about the relationship between God and his people. We're actually going to focus on just on verses 1 to 10. You'll see from um, this slide, uh, if you can make it out against the uh, the background, there we go, thank you. Um, th- there's a structure to verses 1 to 10. Uh, verse 1, come up uh, to the Lord, to the mountain, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders. Verse 9, same, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders went up to the Lord. Uh, verse 3, God's commands, the people reply, we'll do it all, and then there's um, sprinkling of blood. Uh, verse uh, and then later on, verse 7, God's command will do everything the Lord has said. Verse 8, sprinkles, sprinkles of blood. So there's a clear structure going on. Uh, so rather than just work through it, we'll, we'll deal with the, the matching bits because um, uh, it's easier actually to understand the passage that way. Firstly, let's get into it. Bible's open, page uh, 82. God desires relationship. God desires relationship. It's the first and most obvious thing. Verse 1 Then God said to Moses, come up to the Lord. Verse 5, then they have a fellowship offering. That is a sacrifice that's designed to celebrate a relationship with God. Not a sacrifice for sin, a fellowship offering. It's a celebration of their their relationship. Uh, Verse 12, God says, come up on the mountain and stay here. Verse 15 to 18, uh, when Moses goes up to the mountain, it says, Moses went up to the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. In other words, Moses goes up, God comes down, and Moses is with God, with the presence of God in the, in the, the fiery cloud. But the high point of it all, of God calling people to himself, is in verses 9 to 11. Look down with me. Verse 9. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate, and they drank. Sharing a meal with somebody is a sign that you desire to know them that you want to welcome them. There's a huge difference between going out for a drink with colleagues after work and inviting colleagues to your home for a meal that you've cooked. Huge, huge difference. It's also worth looking at the practicalities of this meal. There's no indication, verse 1, that they are told to, uh, to bring any food up to the mountain. That's not mentioned. They're not carrying a picnic hamper with them. So God is feeding them. God calls them up. God sits them down, God serves them, God feeds them. This meal is his gracious provision. You know, if you, um, if you go to India today, you'll see it's full of temples and the, the priests at the temples, they have to wake the gods up in the morning and they feed them their meals and they put them to bed at night. They're, the ancient Greeks, most of their gods, the same sort of thing happened. They would provide meals every day. People would go and provide meals for the gods to eat. But here, the God of the Bible stoops down. He welcomes his people and he feeds them. I'd rather like to know what was on the menu, wouldn't you? (laughs) We're not told, annoyingly. There we go. Um, And then verse 10, we're told that they saw God. They saw the God of Israel. Sort of. I mean, 
under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. So did they see God or not? I mean, the Bible says no one can see God and live. So did they, didn't they? What's going on here? On Friday morning, I took the dog for a walk as usual. And as per usual for May 2015, it was cloudy and rather chilly. But then something happened as I arrived in in Hyde Park. The clouds sort of melted away and the whole park was bathed in warmth and light as that dear, long-departed friend, the sun, (laughs) appeared. I saw the sun. It's a remarkable thing to be able to say this year, but I saw the sun. I really did. Sort of. I mean, so you, you, you looked at the sun and said, well, no, I couldn't look at it. It was just too bright. It's too powerful. It would damage me to, to, to look at the sun. But, but yeah, I, I could see the sun. And that, I think, is what's going on here. They're able to, uh, they see God in the, in the same way that we can see the sun. They, the, the most they can cope with looking at is the pavement under his feet. And even that is just outrageous. It's like sapphire. Imagine what how amazing must a being be if his pavement is sapphire so they they see god sort of it's an extraordinary thought what's going on here because the bible defines god the god of the bible is in one sense defined by his distance from us it's one of the most uh, in fact the most common description of god in the bible is what word holy And the angels declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. What does that mean? It means other, unlike, different. We are flesh and blood, atoms and molecules. He is spirit, uncreated. We are morally shabby, compromised at best. And he is perfect, a pure consuming fire. God is wholly unlike us. God is defined by his difference from us and his distance to us. And yet, here we see he reaches down and he welcomes humans just like you and me and sets a meal before them and says, come and sit and eat with me. God desires relationship. Yeah, hang on a minute. The sharp amongst you feeling a little bit cynical at this moment. You're saying, that all sounds wonderful, but there's kind of, whatever, 700,000 people and 70 of them, 72, including the other two, get this meal. That's, you know, actually most of the passage is about, well, don't come near. There's as much about staying away as there is about welcoming in. I mean, look, uh, verse 1, you are to worship at a distance. Hmm. Verse 2, the others must not come near. The people may not come up with him. Verse 14, Moses commands the elders, wait here, I'm going to the presence of God, you are not. But then this is not the last covenant. And the new covenant is better. This is just a sign, a shadow of what's to come. This is the cart and horses before the Rolls Royce arrives in Jesus Christ. And at this stage, uh, the mediator, the the go-between between God up there and us down here is another man, Moses. And he meets God, if you like, for the people. So he, we can't really get to God, but one man meets God for us, Moses. But one day, the greater Moses comes. And he is not just a man who meets God for us. He is God come to meet us himself. 
The mediator is God himself. And he doesn't uh, meet God for us. He takes us to God. In Jesus Christ, you and I know a greater intimacy with God than Moses knew here on the mountain. That wonderful verse that you've got on your, on your sheets from Hebrews 10 uh, tells us, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. What he's doing at this point in Hebrews, he's saying because of Jesus, because Jesus is the, the one who's better than Moses, you and I don't have to stay at a distance like the people at Mount Sinai. We get to come close to God. Have you ever wondered why uh, the ceremony for the new covenant is so different? I mean, here, the ceremony is very, very different from anything we've done in church. You know, we celebrate the new covenant, not by me uh, getting a bucket of blood each Sunday night and sort of flinging it out over you, but by sharing a meal, eating bread and drinking wine. Why, why is it a meal? I mean, you could celebrate Jesus' death just as easily by sprinkling blood like they do here. So why, why do we celebrate his death with a meal? There's a whole load of sermons you can preach on what exactly is going on at the Lord's Supper. But one thing, one thing that explains why it's a meal is because it tells us in a way which is visceral and physical that we are now, because of Jesus' death, as welcome with God as these elders were. It is a way of saying, because of Jesus' death, we now get to share in a meal like this. It points uh, forward to the day when a, a prophecy in Isaiah will be fulfilled at the return of Jesus. In Isaiah 25, 6, he says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And one day you and I will drink at the wedding feast of God and of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. We will sit down and celebrate that the reign of evil and death is over. As Isaiah 26, 8 says, he will swallow up death forever. And then we will swallow meat and wine in the kingdom of God. We'll eat and drink with him. And we won't just look at the, the, the pavement under God's feet. We'll look into the face of God. We'll look into the eyes of the one who can see and know everything. And yet we won't feel any shame, any guilt any fear. And at the end of the meal, we won't be sent back down the mountain to where we belong because we've been adopted as God's children and our place is with our father in his kingdom, in his house, at his table. God desires relationship and this this covenant ceremony just gives us a hint of what is to come. Secondly, God demands obedience. Uh, The ceremony is rather full of commands. Uh, Look at verse 3. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Verse 4. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. Verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here and I will give you tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. Why is that? Why You often hear Christians say it's about relationship, not rules. It sounds like there's a whole lot about rules here and God is pretty big on obey, obey. Look, I'll tell you what, I'm writing it in stone so nobody 
tries to change it. This is, you know, this is to last forever type stuff. And it's odd. I mean, it would be a pretty worrying sign if a week before a wedding, a groom said to his, um, his fiance, look, I was, um, I thought we'd write our own vows. And I just thought I wanted to beef up your side of the vows. So I've written another 15 pages of things I'd rather like you to promise me. You'd think that's a worrying sign. <laughs> that's a very worrying sign. So what is going on here? Why is God giving them all of these rules? I think there's something incredibly important and incredibly interesting and very, very important at this moment in time for us as a group of people to know. You see, what's going on here is that Israel are being given laws because human beings do not naturally, do not naturally do what God wants. We don't naturally know to do the things of God. God can't say to the Israelites, I am a perfect holy God. I love all that is good and I hate all that is evil. So if you just kind of look at all the cultures around you and be true to your hearts, you'll basically work it out. He can't say that because what's in my heart and what's in our culture is not always good. You see, there is something very important for you and me here. Don't be surprised when God's standards, God's idea of right and wrong about how we spend money, how we use our bodies, how we treat people who disagree with us, how we treat people who are different from us. Don't be surprised when God's standards for those things look very different from the standards of the culture around us. There will always be things that our culture just accepts as normal, but really aren't acceptable in God's eyes. See, back then, if God's word hadn't said, it is wrong and wicked for you to take your child and burn it in a fire and then put it in a clay jar in the house of, uh, of in the temple of God um, to try and kind of win favour make sure the next battles go well and the crops grow. If God hadn't said you shouldn't burn your children in a fire to get blessings, then they would have thought that must be fine because that's what all the cultures around there did. Archaeologists are always digging up uh, the clay jars with babies' bones in them from the temples of the gods at the time. But God's standards of right and wrong are not the same as cultures and so God says no. My way is right. That means that when everyone in our culture, when the politicians, when uh, the movies and the songs and the opinion formers in the newspapers say, this is right. And we think, gosh, that does seem rather different from the Bible. What happens? Well, usually what happens is we start to doubt and question the Bible. We think, Can the Bible really be right when everybody who's anybody says that's ridiculous? It's as if we see our culture as authoritative and, well, the Bible can only be right if it agrees with our culture because our culture is so clever and advanced and wise in every way. You see, right from the start, when God called people to himself, he had to tell them how to behave because humans don't naturally get it right. And as we look back in history, we see how often God's ways were better than accepted culture. 
And in a thousand years' time, people will look back at our culture and they will look at the very issues that you and I are... I'm not really sure. Does the Bible really teach that? It's really unpopular and uh, people think I'm weird and maybe the Bible doesn't really say it. Maybe I can just ignore that. And they'll think, why on earth, why on earth would a culture go that way? We can't see it because everybody's saying it. Everybody's saying it. But to be God's people has always meant to be different. We've forgotten it because uh, for a long time, British culture was in many ways, not in all ways, but in many ways, shaped by the Bible. And so we've kind of grown up with this idea that broadly what our culture says is right. And now we're having to make a decision. When culture says one thing and the Bible says another, who do I listen to? But right from the start, when God gathers a people to himself, they have to learn to live his way not their way. It is always meant swimming against the current to be God's people. So don't lose your nerve. For the Israelites in this time, they were sat there thinking, really? Those laws just don't sound right to us. Look at all the... No, God knows. Trust the God of creation to know what's best for his people. So don't be, don't be unsettled by the growing gulf between um, God's ways and our culture. Don't be unsettled. For most people, for most of history, it's always been like that. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to follow God, well, you're going to have to live differently from the culture around you. Don't be unsettled. Uh, thirdly and finally, God provides sacrifice. And um, Perhaps actually, can we go back to the, uh, the slide with the structure of the, the passage on? Just be, do you see how in the, in the middle of the, of the whole passage is building an altar, altar and sprinkling blood? And in the, in the center, you've got this, this double of uh, the people, God's commands, the people say we'll obey, and then there's uh, some sort of sacrifice. At the center of it is sacrifice. Uh, let's just read verses 3 to 8. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it on the bowls. The other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Each time we will obey, each time blood, sacrifice. Why is that? At this point, it's actually uh, worth digging a little bit into the ancient Near Eastern background. Don't let your eyes glaze over. This is, this is relevant and important. Uh, the word in Hebrew for making a covenant is not make or write or seal. It's cut. It's an odd word. You cut a covenant in the ancient Near East. Why is that? Go back to Genesis 15 and uh, God making the covenant with Abraham and you see it acted out. God says to Abraham, I will be your God, you'll be my people. I'm making these promises to you. And then he tells Abraham, uh, cut in half a whole load of animals. And so he cuts in half a whole load of animals and birds. And then the Lord appears as a, as a, a blazing fire and he goes between the halves of the animals. Why? 
in covenants of the day, you, you did that because it was saying, if I break the terms of this covenant, then I should be split apart like these animals. It's like something from a horror film. It's a horrific thing. But that's what's being said. That's why you cut a covenant. And that's why when the people at the end of verse 7 say, we will obey, Moses sprinkling blood is saying, this blood represents what should happen to you if you break this covenant. But there is something much better, much more gracious, much more hope-filled also going on. You see, at the centre of the passage, the very heart of the passage, is not the sprinkling of blood on people, but on an altar. And that is not God giving a solemn warning, but a gracious promise. Why do I say that? He's saying, look, I know you're not going to keep the terms of my covenant. I know that you will fail repeatedly. So I want you to build something for when you sin. What does he get them to build? It's not a scaffold for the execution of sinful humans. It's an altar for the killing of sacrificial animals. And there is all the difference between those two things. He's saying, I will provide a way for you to be forgiven. I don't believe for a second you're going to do what you've just said. So build an altar, consecrate the altar, and then... When you sin, kill an animal on the altar instead of the sinner. (laughs) It's like God says, build an aeroplane according to my precise plan. And the person says, I will build this aeroplane exactly as you said. You can guarantee it will fly perfectly. And God says, "Mm mm-hmm, and straps a parachute to their back. That's what God is saying. He said, I don't believe for a moment you're going to keep my word. And again, this points forward to something better in the new covenant. See, in the new covenant, in Jesus Christ, God doesn't say, you know what, I don't mind about sin anymore. It's sincerity that does it for me. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, your disobedience is so wicked, so awful that I'm throwing you out. I no longer want you to be my people. Instead, he says, my love is so great for you that I will come and I will live that life you promised to live and failed repeatedly to live. And he says, I will then die that death that should be yours. I will be the one who pays with my blood for your breaking of the covenant. He says, I will fulfill the covenant for you. I will endure the curse and I will win the blessing. I will give you my place at my father's table so that you can know him. I'll deal with your sins fully and finally. And in the new covenant, there is no altar. Uh, There should be no altar in a church. In a Church of England church, there is no altar. Because there is no more sacrifice for sins needed. Jesus has finished it. Okay, so what? So what tomorrow? So God is a God of covenant. So what? I'll tell you so what. It means God has not kept his options open with you. God hasn't penciled your name into his book. God has committed himself to you. And what's more than that, he doesn't just say, you have my word. He says, you have my blood. He's died to prove his commitment to you. And that means you can trust him. Imagine a child, we'll call him Sam. Um, Sam has been in foster care ever since he was born. And the foster carers have been really good, kind. He's, he's, been, he's lucked out with his foster carers. They've been lovely. But the first one only looks after very small children. And so once he's um, 
you know, past toddler stage, he's passed on to the next one. The next one looks after him for a few years, but then they get cancer and, uh, and they can't look after him. And so he's passed on to another foster carer. But that foster carer uh, just can't cope with his outbursts of anger and, his, uh, and, and just some of the rage in him. And so he's passed on to another. But then he's adopted. He's adopted and he's taken home. And they tell him, Sam, we're your forever family. But Sam doesn't feel like that. Sam lives with this dark shadow of dread that one day, one day, one day he'll be told to pack his bags. One day the social worker will appear and one day he'll drive off to another home. What does his family do? How, how can they convey to him, no, no, this is, this is forever. You're our son now. They could say, look, we love you. We really love you. But the thing is, the foster carers really loved him as well. They could say to him, Sam, uh, look how well we've treated you since you've been here. But, well, the foster carers treated him very well as well. You know what they need to do for him? They need to get out the adoption certificate and say, Sam, let me tell you about the law. By law, this is a covenant, Sam. A solemn, binding, unbreakable promise. These signatures here and the law of this land mean you cannot be taken out of this family. His assurance comes from understanding the law and seeing the signature. Knowing that this family is his forever family. And you and I need to know that our security is is not just that, that, that God loves us, not just that, uh, well, God has treated me well. It comes from knowing that God has made a covenant, an unbreakable promise, a promise sealed in blood in the death of his own son, a promise he cannot go back on. God would have to be torn apart if he broke this promise, and that will not happen. And when you and I sin again and again and again, and, uh, and we hear the devil's lies and we feel guilt and doubt and shame, and we just, we waver as to whether God can keep loving me, whether I really can be accepted when I'm just not good enough for him. I need something solid on which to stand. And the Bible gives me covenant. The Bible says it is worth doing theology because the more you understand this, the less you will doubt and we need, to, we need to work it out in our minds so that we can drive it into our hearts. We need to preach this to ourselves so that we speak truth about our certain future to ourselves rather than listen to the lies and the doubts and the, the fear and the insecurity. Because God hasn't given you a hint that, you know, he might accept you in Jesus. He hasn't even given you a clear statement. He's given you the death of his son. And every time you eat the bread and drink the wine. Every time we reenact the covenant, every time you hear the promises and look to the death of Jesus, we are reassured that God is going to keep his word. And every time you read the history of the Old Testament, you see a God who, who makes a covenant and then keeps it century after century after century, and then restates the covenant to a new generation and keeps it century after century after century. To learn this truth. Remind yourself of it daily. Own it so that you trust God. See, you and I will only live bold and courageous and joyful and sacrificial lives for God if we are 
absolutely secure that I can take a risk for this God because he's got me and he won't let me go and his promise to keep me will remain secure. Live boldly because if you trust in Jesus, your security as God's child is every bit as sure as Jesus' security as God's son. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you're a God of covenant. Uh, Thank you that you're a God who has given us more than just your word, although that should be enough. We thank you that you have given us the death of your son and this ceremony that reminds us of him. Please would you help us to drive these truths into our hearts and to live lives that show we, we trust you, we believe you and we love you. Amen.